Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Episode number 23, Simon Head and Chamat Karsandu, giving you our distinctly British take on the world of mixed martial arts. We're easing our way into 2017. We've had our first uh, UFC Fight Night event of the year, Phoenix, Arizona, where we saw BJ Penn make his not really a long-awaited comeback. It was uh, something that was due to happen and got delayed. Not a lot of people wanted to see it. It happened. It didn't go well for him. We will talk about that on this week's show. We'll also run through some of the other major results and winners and losers from the night. We'll talk about the UFC commentary situation. We'll bring you the latest news on the Ultimate Fighter. And, of course, we will answer your questions as sent to us via our Twitter handle, at the Pack. MMA. Mr. Sandu, we are back in the saddle. Things seem to be gradually kicking into gear now. I know we've got another two-week break before the next UFC show, but we're off and running. UFC Fight Night this weekend has kicked things off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think 2016 was a banner year for the UFC, and it's going to be one of those um, you know, years that's going to be really hard to not only reproduce, um, but exceed so um, I think you know we were off to a, a decent start. I mean, for for me personally, it was a it was a hell of a long night. I think today, as we're recording this on a Monday, I'm on absolute fumes because I was uh, watching uh, the you know again talking from a British perspective here. There was um, an invasion of the WWE in in the UK this this past weekend in Blackpool, where they uh, had their inaugural. Uh, WWE UK Championship, which actually kind of made me think of something that Gary Cook um, said a few years back. Um, he was uh, very keen on having, you know, a European UFC Championship belt, and and I think the feedback at the time then was, well, you don't want to kind of meddle that too much, especially you know, with we'll see what happened with boxing. But in any case, I digress. I'll, I'll watch that. That was a couple of hours yesterday evening. Rolled straight into some NFL action. I'm not the biggest NFL fan, uh, but I'm a Packers fan. So I watched the Packers um, do one over on our friend John Morgan's Dallas Cowboys. So that was a bit of fun. And uh, and then rolled right into the very first UFC fight card of the year, UFC Fight Night Phoenix, which started off pretty well. There was a lot of finishes. Then we got into a bit of a drudge. Um, with with a lot of decisions, well, where you know, especially with fighters that perhaps they either their stories haven't been told or they're not really you know you know household names. Uh, but of course, I mean, kind of we're building up to that big marquee headline main event with Yair Rodriguez, who are obviously I know that you and me are both massive massive fans of, and of course the legend that is BJ Penn. But um, but yeah, it was good to kind of get things going again and start uh, which you know what you know was the first of many late, late nights and early mornings of 2017. Yeah, you're talking about the NFL. I'm a Denver Broncos fan, so I needn't have stayed up to watch any of that, given that we, got, <laughs> we, got, we had a terrible season. Defending Super Bowl champions, and we didn't have a quarterback worth, worth the money. So, um, But yeah, that, that Dallas Cowboys-Green Bay Packers game was something pretty special. Even I've been watching NFL since the 1990s. So, In fact, since, since the 1980s. So... Um, but but that was a special game. Great, great uh, contest between those two. I was actually WhatsApping John, who was watching it on via his sling box at press row. So he, he had the he was front row of press row watching the fights happen in front of him. And next to him, he's got a screen with the, his beloved Dallas Cowboys getting pipped at the post by the uh, the Green Bay Packers. That was a great uh, a great contest. 
What we didn't get, sadly, was a great contest in the main event in Phoenix. Now, I wrote a piece leading up to this this fight, and uh, I got lulled in a little bit, I've got to admit, by the aura of BJ Penn. He's, he's an absolute legend of the sport, two-weight world champion. When that man stares you in the eye and tells you something, he makes you believe. There's something, there's just something about him. Everything he says, it, it, he just comes across as in just completely, completely committed, completely credible. Um, you look at the facts of the matter, they suggested this was going to be a tough assignment for him. Yet there was that slight lingering, whether it's hope or whether it was just being devil's advocate. It's probably a bit of both. And I said leading into the fight, do not count out BJ Penn because he's got it in him to do something. And if if Yoyo Rodriguez goes into this overly confident, then he could get caught. Well, what we saw was Yoyo Rodriguez absolutely on point, completely focused on the task in hand, and he took it to BJ Penn. The kicks in particular were were, were hugely successful for him in that fight. And um, BJ Penn... You know, he got us invested. He got us wondering, can he do it? But then real life kicked in and it hurt. Um, And now you've got to be thinking, that really is the end of BJ Penn in the UFC. Um, What did you make of that? And what did you make of Yair Rodriguez? Because he he turned in a very impressive performance. But now the time has come for him to take on some some, some properly ranked opposition, I think. Yeah, I mean... First and foremost, very impressed with Yai Rodriguez, but I don't think um, it was anything that we weren't expecting of him. I think by now um, we're, we're expecting um, a lot of the aerial attacks with his kicks. Um, he was kicking BJ's legs and body and head at will throughout that very first round, um, and didn't take you know too much time in the second round to get the job done and finish it. Um, I suppose it was a good. Uh, signature win. Uh, it's another main event, which is which is great for him. It helps kind of uh, keep uh, growing his uh, his following, especially in that uh, Latin America and especially Mexican market. Um, I mean, for BJ Penn, it was just one of those things where, like yourself, like you said, Simon, I was starting to bit by bit, slowly throughout fight week, getting emotionally invested in, in, in him again. And he started to reminisce of all the you know, fantastic memories he's given us. Uh, through his time in the sport, but then the stark reality hit of the task at hand, and you're fighting somebody who's 14 years your junior, who is coming up in a generation of fighters that are very well-rounded. They've been doing MMA since they were four or five years old, or since they could walk, you know, um, and they're innovative, they're, they're younger, they're faster, they're more athletic, they're training in a much different way, uh, and then obviously BJ's dealing with a 37, 38-year-old body, you know, I'm just 33 and I can barely make up my stairs without, you know, heaving. And, um, you know, God bless him. I, I appreciate his his willingness to stay relevant, stay in the game and, and fight. Um, and, and it was obviously something that was burning deep inside him. Uh, and I think the UFC had it right the first time round when they had him booked against Dennis Siva. That made a lot of sense. Siva also, um, you know, up in age, he's a bit of a journeyman himself. Uh, that would have made a lot of sense. Um, that would have been a competitive fight uh, for BJ, and a fight I probably would have picked BJ to win. Um, but then, as things started to happen um, with 
um, injury and uh, the situation with USADA and then obviously the the fight with Ricardo Lamas that was booked for the Philippines and that fight card capitulating and uh, not taking place. Here we ended up with Yair Rodriguez and I don't know who he pissed off in the UFC or if it was Joe Silva's final hurrah before he left or if this is Sean Shelby's McMaynard's doing it. I'm not quite entirely sure who made this particular fight. Um, but the, the minute... Yair Rodriguez was walking down to, down the aisle into the octagon. All I could envision was just the complete and utter destruction of BJ Penn. And I have to say, on a side note, big fan of John McCarthy. I think he's arguably the best referee in the business. I mean, him, uh, Herb Dean and Mark Goddard are your 1A, 1B and 1C in my opinion. But I thought he had a bit of a shocker in that main event. I thought he could have stopped the fight a little bit earlier um, I know BJ Penn was, you know, was squirming and trying to scramble, and and he was moving quite a bit, but he was taking a lot of punishment from Yair Rodriguez, um, and and he wasn't answering back, you know, and there's only so much punishment. I mean, the referee's job is in there to 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 you know to help protect the fighter from themselves, you know, and we all know BJ's got a lot of guts and determination and heart and grit, um, and he and he's not going to go down without a fight, um, you know, he'll probably fight until his you know dying breath. Uh, but you've got to be there to protect him. Um, and I thought John had a... He could have done better, put it that way. He could have done better. Um, but um, but yeah, I'm like you, Sai. I think BJ hopefully got something out of his system uh, during fight week. Maybe it was a connection with the fans. Maybe it was just to, to, to ask himself and test himself one final time, go through a fight camp. He got a different look. He spent some time at Jackson Wink and all that. Um, and it still wasn't enough, Right. And he was having, in my opinion, delusions of grandeur, thinking that he was going to beat Rodriguez and then go for another world title. Um, so, uh, so yeah, hopefully BJ can now uh, peacefully walk off um, into the into the sunset uh, and be happy with what is still um, a fantastic, legendary, mythological career. Yeah, what you were saying about about the uh, about the stoppage and the fact that I think Big John gave a little bit of benefit of the doubt to BJ there, possibly. And also, I guess, and I, I guess, as a referee, you can't think like this. But maybe it's hard not to, or I, you know, only and, and only he knows what what was going through his head at the time. Uh, he may have just thought he's still moving, he's still trying to improve his position and, and try and work his way out. Um, there's also maybe the nagging thought that this might be the last thing for BJ Penn, and he wanted to give him every opportunity uh, to try and get himself out, and maybe in doing so. Gave him a little more opportunity uh, for Yair Rodriguez to to sort of apply more more punishment. So I don't know. I mean, I understand. I understand where you're going with that one. I think uh, it's a tough call, especially when you know the stakes involved. It's, and as a ref, you have to kind of be sort of hard to that and a bit sort of dispassionate to that. But I think when it's someone like BJ Penn who's been in the game for as long as he has, and you know, it, there's obviously the potential for a little bit of, uh, of, of, of that to, to sort of creep into it. What I did want to talk about was, was Yair Rodriguez and where he goes next. Mm. Um, obviously, he's I think he was ranked 15th going into this. Uh, and now, obviously, I don't know whether a win over a guy who hasn't fought in two and a half years is really going to move you up the rankings. Um, but we're certainly talking about him right now. The question is, who's he going to fight next? And I think the perfect scenario would be for him to take on the winner of the Dennis Bermudez Korean zombie fight, which is happening a couple of events, a couple of events down the road. Um, I think the winner of that would be an ideal, an ideal next opponent 
for for um for, for El Pantera. I think you know the zombie obviously is on his way back into the UFC. Really interested to see how he looks against the real baller in Dennis Bermudez. He's he's one of those. He's not quite at world championship level, but he's not far below. He's not far below it, and you don't need to string two or three good wins together to get there. I think he's the ideal. If he were to beat the zombie, I think Bermudez would be the ideal next fight for Yair Rodriguez. Uh, I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on who he might who, who he might take on next. That, to me, would seem like the natural thing. Also, they'll be on a very similar time frame as well, given that Bermudez zombie, I think, is happening back end of this month or early next month. So um, that's going to be... I, 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 think, I think that just seems to sort of fit together quite nicely. I've got a slightly different take on what you do with Rodriguez next. And, and while you were talking, Simon, I actually brought up the UFC rankings. He's actually higher uh, than you mentioned. And I thought, I thought he was at about the 15 mark as well. He's actually at 10 right now. And that's before uh, the, the official UFC ranking has, have been updated. They usually get updated on Tuesday. So you'd like to think that with yet another main event win, he's probably going to shoot up another one or two spots. So he could, he'll be well in the top 10 now. Uh, perhaps seven, eight, or nine. I think, why not? I mean, given the fact that he had two back-to-back main event slots, I'd maybe throw him in there with Anthony Pettis. Anthony Pettis, actually, no, actually, Anthony Pettis is going back up to lightweight now. He's not going to be in the featherweight uh, rankings anymore, uh, but they've still got him um, listed there, which is a shame because that's what threw me off. But um, if not Anthony Pettis, then number seven right now is Charles Oliveira. And Charles Oliveira um, lately seems to be kind of like almost... Um, the, the the almost at the top five kind of um, gate gates the, the gatekeeper of the, of the top five almost you know he's he's not quite good enough to break into the top five but he's always floating in between five and ten so um, I think perhaps a, a fight between Rodriguez and, and Oliveira might then get him to that next level where he perhaps he could then after that fight a top five guy um, but what you've got with Rodriguez like I think you know we mentioned already is a guy that's that's young, um, is different, he's exciting to watch. Um, he's now uh, been in a few main events, so he's had that big spotlight on him. He's going to break well into that top 10. He's got a massive signature marquee win over a legend uh, like, like BJ Penn. Um, so I think now you start to, this year, put the rocket boosters behind him. He could potentially have um, a year quite similar to what Cody Garbrandt had in 2016. You know, he's young, he's already off to a, a, a TKO slash knockout victory to start the campaign in 2016. Um, I don't think he got a mark on him. I think you could turn him around quite quickly. And let, let, let's see, maybe by the end of the year, maybe he could be fighting for an interim featherweight championship. Who knows? Stop with the interim. <laughs> no more interim belts. No more. Yeah, we might... What what I, I thought the other day, and we may, maybe we'll look at this for next week's show, because next week's also going to be a bit of a gap week. We won't have an event to really talk about in terms of the UFC. Uh, maybe maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll we'll look at sort of New Year's resolutions and things things that we might we might look to uh, suggest for the betterment of the sport uh, in, heading into 2017. Things we'd like to see. One of them involves interim championships. We need to bin those things off. But yep. um, but yes. Um, yeah, I think I think you know the sky is the limit for 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 Yair Rodriguez. He's in a good weight class where there are lots of permutations for him. Jeremy Stevens is looking for a fight. You know, mm-hmm. we've got we've got him. Brian Ortega is a dangerous rising contender as well. He's I think he's ranked just one place above uh, 
uh, Rodriguez at this point. So, of course, we've got the Korean. Sorry, we've got uh, the Korean Superboy as well. Duho Choi knocking around. Well, I think he's now below Yair in the rankings. So, he is. So and Cub Swanson obviously he's looking towards a title shot. We've got you know there's an awful lot of potential in that division. Basically, you can per. You can perm any two from the top 12 in that division and you're going to get a great matchup one way or another. So uh, the matchmakers, I don't think, have any kind of headache for uh, £145. That weight class is stacked. Um, one of the more exciting weight classes in the UFC right now. And uh, with talent like Yair Rodriguez moving their way up as well, uh, the future certainly looks bright at 145 Are we in agreement here? BJ Penn, is it's time for him to hang him up, right? 100% Simon I I, I mean it, it got to a point last night where it was just tough to watch like I just didn't want to see that um, from the UFC I know Dana White infamously said um, you know during I think it was BJ's last fight with Frank Yadka that he doesn't want to, want to make a single dollar of that kind of money uh, well I hope he sticks to it this time around because I'm sure they've you know made some money from last night's fight card once again with BJ Penn fighting a phenom of a young talent in Rodriguez but I hopefully that, that'll be That'll be all now. I don't want to see uh, BJ Penn fight anymore. Yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, the co-main event was, was very interesting. Uh, it perhaps wasn't the most exciting fight to watch. Um, there was a lot of groundwork going on. If Obviously, if you're a fan of uh, MMA for a reasonable period of time, you'll be able to appreciate and understand a lot of the stuff that was happening in that fight. Um, one of the things, I think for me, the big takeaway wasn't so much the fight, it was more what happened after. Um, mm. Joe Lozon got the win. He took it by split decision. Two judges scored it 29-28 in his favour. The third judge gave all three rounds to Machine Held. Um, and Lozon's reaction after the fight, I think, tells you everything you need to know about Joe Lozon. One of the classiest guys in the sport. Um, we've, seen him, we've seen him step away from fighters in the past, basically finish fights himself when referees wouldn't step in quickly enough for him. Um, you know, he, he's, he's refused to apply uh, additional shots to grounded fighters who look like they're already done. He's, and, and he's also uh, he's, he's a great interview. He's a very uh, interesting guy to chat to. Loves his science fiction and uh, loves his video games as well. He's, he's a top man, is Joe Lozon. Um, he won the fight, although he doesn't think he did. Now, normally, if you win a fight and you don't think you did, you keep your mouth shut, take your win bonus and leg it to the nearest airport and think, I've, you know, you basically count yourself lucky that you got out of it uh, with, a, with a W and with a win bonus. Lozon, after the fight, basically said that the whole thing sucks. He's been involved in fights before when he's felt that he's won and then he's ended up losing out. Um, and he knows, he knows how that feels. So he, he had real empathy for... For Marcin Held, who he felt won, won rounds two and three in that mm. contest. It was a very tricky fight to score, and we've got new scoring criteria. And I think he referenced that in his in his post fight scrum, where he was saying that maybe the judges scored his strikes uh, from the bottom as more effective than Marcin's top position that he was maintaining during during some of that fight. So that's where things are a little bit tricky sometimes, and I guess. When you've got two judges giving it 29-28 one way and a third judge giving it a shutout the other way, then that, I guess that perhaps illustrates where the uh, the scoring and the changes in the scoring criteria 
uh, might take a little while to bed in across all of the MMA judging community. Everyone scores the fight uh, their own way. Uh, obviously, they've all got the same same guidelines. But I thought Lozon's attitude and the way that he approached it, and the sort of the uh, the cherry on top of the cake for me was where he, he said in the in the scrum that he's going to basically be pestering Sean Shelby to make sure that they keep Marcine held on the roster. That was back to back losses uh, for Held, mm. um, and. Uh, Basically, Lozon said, this guy's good and we need to hang on to him. And I think for, for for someone like Joe Lozon to say that, you know, the length of time he's had operating at the highest level in the UFC, um, I think I think when someone like that says something, I think it's worth listening to him. So I hope I hope they do they do listen to him. Marcin, obviously a European-based fighter. You'd expect that if they do hang on to him, uh, we'll, we'll get to see a, a bit more of him on perhaps on some of the uh, European shows later this year. But uh, I thought I thought it was a really classy move from Joe Lozon. As I say, the fight the fight was the fight. It was you know it was an interesting uh, grappling matchup for for large parts. But I thought Joe Lozon's reaction in that fight was 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 outstanding, and I think he deserves all the credit in the world for it. Yeah, I mean the fight was around four thirty four forty five in the morning, and I was really struggling up until that point, only because we were coming off I think four or five decisions in a row. So it was starting, and you throw in the the FS1 broadcast, and it can turn into a, a very long, uh, you know, painfully long uh, night at times. Um, and, I, and I can't remember exactly how I scored it off the top of my head, but I think I did, did just give it to Held. Um, but it is one of those fights that's tricky to score. You know, there's, there's so much going on. Um, but I think the, the large majority of everybody I was kind of looking on my Twitter feed had it scored for Held, so I felt kind of comfortable as I was trying to keep my eyes awake to watch that particular fight. Um, but like you said, Absolute class by Joe Lozon. He's a fighter's fighter. You know, what, which other guy or gal do you know um, that will immediately, in the post-fight interview, completely discredit uh, the victory uh, and then just praise their opponent in, in that fashion? So, um, yeah, absolute pure class from Lozon. Uh, if we had a couple more like him uh, in the sport, uh, then, uh, then, then MMA would be a much better place. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I hope we get to see it. A little bit more of Jolo's on too. He's he's been fighting for a long time, and I'm sure his thoughts must be gradually turning towards what he might be getting ready to do when he hangs his gloves up. But um, he's still capable of competing at a decent level in the UFC. And uh, even though he didn't necessarily agree with it, uh, he picked up the victory on Sunday night. Other notable uh, performances, just to touch on before we move on: Killer B, Ben Saunders, Renaissance, uh, Renaissance uh, seems to be continuing. He beat Court McGee who's always difficult to uh, to get past, beaten by unanimous decision. That's back-to-back wins for him, five out of his last six. He's he's an always interesting guy to watch fight, very awkward, very tall for the weight class. Uh, he did well. Sergio Pettis claiming probably the biggest win of his career, Sandu, beating, mm. uh, beating John Moraga uh, by unanimous decision. He looked good in that final. I think it might have been the first round. It might have been the second round. He had Moraga in big trouble at one point. I think it might have been round two. He uh, he had him rocked, and for a minute there, I thought Pettis was going to get a finish. But uh, he fought very smart. He's been caught sort of charging in, looking for finishes in the past. And uh, he showed a lot, of, uh, a lot of maturity in that fight. Played the long game, kept to his game plan, and uh, deservedly picked up his win. Good performance from him. Uh, and uh, obviously we had two other big performances. Nina Ansarov who has invested most of her last 12 months helping helping her, her girlfriend, Amanda Nunes, 
reached the heights of the UFC Bantamweight world title. Now she's getting a bit of the spotlight, and you can see why the uh, the coaches at American Top Team are so, so high on Ansarov's talent. Um, I believe Dean Thomas, I think, I think it was referenced in the commentary, actually John Anik mentioned that Dean Thomas said that Ansarov was the best 115-pound fighter at American Top Team. And when you bear in mind Yuani and Jacek's knocking about that gym now, that's quite some statement. So, um, interesting. And Tisha Torres. And Tisha Torres. And Tisha Torres. So, that's interesting. And, and you know, if, if, if Nina continues to rise the ranks and has a nice active year, then uh, we might end up with a bit of an awkward situation at some point later this year where you might find two ATT strawweights having to face off against one another. But for now, she's building her career quite nicely. Third round sub over Jocelyn jones Liebarger. Again, very tough campaign, difficult to put away. A very gritty performer, but Ansarov looked really good in that fight. And for me, the standout performance, we had Alexi Olinik um, claimed an amazing submission. Uh, Ezekiel Choke from his back, uh, amazing. That won him a $50,000 bonus for performance of the night. Uh, Yaya Rodriguez won the other performance of the night bonus. But Walt Harris, to me, I think can count himself incredibly unlucky not to be walking away from Phoenix without... Uh, a bonus check in his back pocket. He produced, for me, the finish of the night. Uh, beautiful combination. Big knee up the middle. Huge right hook. Great straight left. And uh, just took Chase Sherman to the cleaners there. A really, really impressive performance from, from Walt Harris. Very unlucky not to get a bonus, Sandu. Yeah, absolutely. I think you kind of nailed it with regards to some of the fights, the fight or the wins uh, that you've picked out there. Um, Pettis, uh, I was really impressed by him. Um, I thought that um, I think he's matured now. He's growing into that body of his, and I think he's perfect for flyweight. Um, you, you mentioned Nina Ansarov. I thought she started a little slow. I thought actually the first couple of minutes of that first round, Lieberger were actually doing quite well. Um, but then Nina kind of kind of came into her own, um, and uh, I think the, the time spent at ATT is kind of the proof's in the pudding now with with Nina Ransaroff, and it'd be good to see her get some tougher competition, making her way up the uh, the women's strawweight um, rankings. Oh, <laughs> Alexi Olyanik, I mean, I've never seen this kind of submission before in my entire life, and it's fantastic that you know we're ardent fans of the sport, you know, we we're, we're hardcores, uh, and we watch this sport a hell of a lot, and still. Uh, you know, there's things things that happen that kind of even surprise us at times. So at, at first, I didn't know what what was quite going on until I actually, um, you know, started seeing some of our peers who are, you know, very much uh, students of the game when it comes to jujitsu, kind of uh, start to talk about what this particular choke was as the Ezekiel choke. And for the life of me, when when I heard it was called the Ezekiel choke. All I could think about was that speech from Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, um, which I thought was just, you know, uh, a weird connection. Um, and, but then, and like you said right at the end there, um, when, you, when you were kind of giving your take on the card side, uh, Walt Harris, uh, really uh, impressed by him yesterday. Um, and he needed it. You know, he's coming off a couple of losses. And, you know, um, I think he wanted to prove to himself and, you know, evidently so afterwards uh, proved to uh, Daniel Cormier exactly uh, what he's made of, and um, and I thought he looked great. He was very athletic, very powerful. And listen, the heavyweight division always needs um, new blood, um, needs some new talent to start to cultivate cultivate their way um, up the rankings. And um, he certainly, you know, on last night's um, showing, got all the tools uh, to make a run in the heavyweight division. Uh, and and those were the kind of uh, the key kind of standout moments, standout fighters 
uh, from the fight card for me. Yeah, we had a. There was one other thing that just literally just sprang to mind as you were finishing up there. There was a bizarre moment, and you, you know, you talked about we the uh, Ezekiel choke submission. Certainly not seen it from that position before. Um, something else that I've never seen in a professional mixed martial arts contest. It was, uh, I think, it was Tony Martin suffered a broken cup during his preliminary fight with uh, with Alex White, and they had to stop the fight to change his cup mid-fight, which offers a bit of a problem for the cameraman. Where'd you point the camera at that point? There's that. And obviously, it's not the sort of uh, wardrobe malfunction that we're used to seeing in mixed martial arts. Angela Hill brilliantly tweeted and said, uh, good to see that wardrobe malfunctions aren't just limited to women's sports bras or something like that. So, uh, you know, the lads have got to sort of suffer some stuff as well. So he had to find a replacement cup. Uh, thankfully, they have one, so he was able to make the quick switcheroo and then carry on, and uh, went on to win the fight. But, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was again something we hadn't seen before. And there's always that's the great thing about watching watching the UFC and people who don't watch it. When I sort of talk to them about events I've been off to cover or stuff that's been on the TV, there's always something new to tell people, and they must think you can't keep making this stuff up. You know, <laughs> it's. It, there's all, but there is. There's always something new, even though basically the premise is the same, the structure of the events is largely the same. Everyone's fighting to the same rules every week, yet the sport always seems to throw up new, interesting, bizarre, controversial, spectacular talking points almost on a weekly basis. And I guess that's why we love this sport as much as we do. You talked about um, Walt Harris calling out Daniel Cormier. Um, he wasn't the only fighter to actually reference him in the uh, in the post in the post fight interviews. But what I wanted to do was was just talk about the commentary situation. Obviously, we mm. uh, Mike Mike Goldberg, who was in the crowd, by the way, someone yeah. screen grabbed it brilliantly, and he he was he was giving it he was giving it the sign to the camera um, as 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 the camera was panning around the fans. I don't know whether they referenced the fact that Mike was in shot at the time. But um, clearly someone spotted him and screen grabbed it and put it on Twitter. So we're in the post-Mike Goldberg era now when it comes to mm. UFC commentary. Uh, this was a fight night event. Quite often when you get a fight night event, we get John Anik. John Anik is as, as seasoned as they come uh, and uh, just a consummate professional. Everything from his preparation to his delivery, um, he's excellent at what he does. And what they've seemed to have been doing is trialing a load of different analysts and pundits alongside him um actually the only well in fact the only two that i can think of who haven't really been given a shot in that are bisbing and, and tyron woodley we've seen uh dc's had a stint dominic cruz has had a go ken flow obviously has commentated on numerous occasions uh with, with john anik in the past uh this this past weekend it was john anik with daniel cormier what did you make of them as a, as a combination dc gives you a different sort of flavor to say brian stan who quite often takes that spot alongside anik these days um is this a sign that stan's going to be moved up to the 18 perhaps i mean what do you make of the whole situation well i think it's good to experiment and to figure out you know who has chemistry um how some of these guys are, are working and performing i know that uh, our very own you know brit uh Dan Hardy has been over the stateside a lot recently to do more of the in-studio analyst work 
uh, for Fox. But there's always a potential of him being sent downstairs uh, and being put uh, cage side because um, he's done that gig in Europe with John Gooden. It's always a good shout to put John Gooden over there as well. You know, we are the Brit pack, so it's good to kind of support uh, the guys from this side of the pond. But um, I thought with, with Cormier... He's got this enthusiasm uh, about the sport, and I think when you when you hear him and you uh, you're following it, you know what he's saying, um, there's a sense of passion and fun, right? Uh, Cormier sounds as if he's having fun, um, which makes you feel like you're having fun watching and listening to the product as as the fights are playing out. So that's very, very that's very very good. Um, I'd still like to see a few more combinations though. I'd like to see. I'm a big fan of Dominic Cruz, and uh, obviously we'll see how his fight career uh, continues over the next couple of years. But I, I think if they're going to have different teams for different um, groups of fights, there's no reason why active fighters like Cormier and Cruz can't juggle both and do both. Um, so I thought last night's combination was great. I'm a big fan of Anik and Stan anyway. Um, so to have Anik and Cormier, that works. The UFC did announce actually that for the next pay-per-view offering, UFC 208, it's going to be a three-man team. So we're going to have Joe Rogan, uh, John Anik, and Daniel Cormier. That's going to be the triple threat team um, from from Octagon side for that particular pay-per-view. So that'll be interesting to see, okay, well, your pay-per-view is your premier offering. Now, these are the guys um, that you're you know, now going to showcase to the world uh, in regards to your quote-unquote A-team. So we'll see how they kind of gel and get along as a three-team. Um, I'm not sure if I'm a fan of three teams or not. Um, I think sometimes it works. Sometimes it can be a little bit too much. Uh, it, it depends on, again, the chemistry. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how things play out. I, th- I think they might complement each other well because they're all different personalities. And, of course, they've got different gigs when it comes to the actual commentating itself. Um, but uh, like a lot of things this year, Simon, it's interesting times when it comes to the UFC. You're not, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. I'm actually... I. I'm a fan of the three-man team. I've got to be honest, I think, provided the chemistry is there and they're well enough drilled, they've had a few trial runs perhaps, and they both, and, and, and all three of them know know their lane, so to speak. They know where, when when it's the certain person's time to talk and they're not talking, they're not talking over each other too much. Yeah. Then I, I think it can work really well. Um, I think Anik is the ideal, the ideal play-by-play guy in that, in that respect. Rogan obviously gives you gives you uh, an awful lot of passion and, and knowledge, and the fans obviously love him. Stan just give Stan just absolutely reeks of credibility. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. In the nicest possible way. When Brian Stan talks, you listen. When Brian Stan walks into a room, you behave yourself. When Brian Stan tells you. To go stand over there, you go stand over there. It's just everything about him. Even if you didn't know what he did for a living, even if you didn't know that he's a former uh, a, a former serviceman, if you didn't know that he was a he, he's a former world champion mixed martial artist, just to walk in and see the guy, he's just got this aura about him. Um, so from from the credibility standpoint. He just gives you everything. But you also, you don't want things to be dry. And he, he, he manages to do that without being too dry. But then if you've got someone with that sort of ebullient personality of a of a Daniel Cormier, I think I think it could work really well as well. So finding the right blend and the right the right chemistry between the three, I think will will work out perfectly. And I think once they find the right trio, ideally you want you want two or three trios. 
So you want you want a trio that that are going to do the big pay per view events. Maybe they'll just stick with a a two man lineup for the fight night shows and just go with the three man lineup for the pay per views. I don't know, but um, yeah, I'm interested to see how it all shakes out and whether they are going to settle on a a fixed lineup or whether they're going to move things around. I mean, sometimes it's nice to get to get different voices and it would be nice. You know, you mentioned you mentioned the British boys. Mm. It would be nice. I think it would. I think it would be great for the UFC to give uh, John Gooden and Dan Hardy an American show or two to call. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I don't think there would have been any harm in them calling last night's show as an example. Um, just because I think I think the American, in in general, from from what I can make out, the reaction from from the American fans towards uh, John and Dan, and particularly from you know our, our fellow journalists that we speak to you know it's been overwhelmingly positive and i think i think that also that i think that also helps i know over here when we watch the nfl we wouldn't dream of watching the nfl with english like native british commentary you you know you want the american commentators because it just lends a certain a certain uh, style and a certain flavor to the action Sometimes having a different accent on on the sport can help. So um, I think I think with the British guys, it'd be great to see them get to get a, a further gig or two in uh, in the states. While also obviously we've got these big shows in Europe, maybe they can just say right, you're going to call all of these because that hasn't always been the case in the past. Maybe they'll yep. say to John and Dan, you're going to be our point guys in Europe every time, and that's your that's your beat if you like. And it also means that they're able to cover shows more frequently and. They'll they'll get even better than they are now because they're calling calling fights more often. But the one thing that we are very fortunate with, with when it comes to commentary is we are blessed with an awful lot of people who are good in this mm-hmm. sport. Um, you know, we've got good play by play guys. They've got a, they've got a, a, a host of people who would make uh, entertaining and engaging analysts or, or color commentators. So very interesting to see where they go. There's been talk about Jim Rome potentially joining joining the commentary team further down the line. I don't, I don't know how that, how, how, how that would fit in, um, whether he would be a play-by-play guy or not, but that would be interesting to see. But uh, as you say, we're in the WMEIMG era. Much change, I think, is expected in 2017, and uh, very interested to see how things go. One thing that is hanging around at least for one more season is the Ultimate Fighter. And uh, press release was circulated today to confirm what's happening with the next season of The Ultimate Fighter, the 25th season, no less. Uh, it's been uh, taglined, The Ultimate Fighter Redemption, Team Garbrandt versus Team Dillashaw, and instantly it lends the uh, it lends us the, uh, the hope that we're going to see a title fight between Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw at the end of all of this. But they're going to coach against each other, and... Given that the uh, and we've spoken about this a lot, Sandu, whether it be on this show or over a beer in a bar somewhere or you know during fight weeks, the Ultimate Fighter format is getting a bit tired, mm-hmm. and it isn't generating the level of fighter that it used to. Largely because there are a lot more promotions around the world building talent that's pretty much UFC ready or close to UFC ready, and then the UFC brings them in builds them up via the Fight Pass platform, and, and then they sort of grow up through the system like that, and they kind of develop the talent themselves. So as a talent finder, it's become less of a factor for the UFC. Probably for the last 
eight, nine, ten seasons even. Um, there are obviously notable exceptions who have come through and done very well. But in the main, it hasn't really had the same impact that it used to have. This show is going to be a little bit different. We've had tournaments to determine title contenders in the past, tournaments to build a division in the past. This one takes us back to what many people uh, would, would probably say is their favourite season of the Ultimate Fighter, rather than the first one, which was the, the Ultimate Fighter comeback season, which ended up with Matt Serra, I believe, going on and fighting GSP and, and, and beating him. So, But this one is called Redemption. Everyone on the roster will have competed on the Ultimate Fighter before. There's going to be one athlete who is already on the UFC roster, and there's going to be a number of previous Ultimate Fighter winners. But the whole cast, and they're all welterweights, will have competed on a previous season of the show. Um, it all kicks off with a two-hour episode, obviously all, all of the prelims. It's always my favourite episode, the first one. Yeah. Uh, Wednesday, April the 19th, 10pm uh, Eastern. Um, and I would assume if BT Sport do what they have been doing, that'll be simulcast here in the UK via BT Sport. Um, what do you make of the setup? Are you are you happy that they're doing this? Is there much life for the show after this? What do you what do you and, and also do you agree with the combination of coaches? What do you make of it? Well, I like the coaches the, the combination of the coaches because I think what it what the show will allow you to do is tell the story uh, to perhaps fans who aren't embedded into our bubble so much so. Um, I think it's also a way of really finding out um, how Cody Gar- how far Cody Garbrandt can uh, reach in terms of his potential draw. Um, I know they did that same thing with, uh, with Conor McGregor when he was up against Uriah Faber in a season of The Ultimate Fighter. Um, what this means is that you're going to have a build-up leading to what appears to be um, the the July. The, normally, the, the, the show is geared towards setting up fights for the big July 4th weekend extravaganza blockbuster UFC fight week um, where you know last year we had uh, Yanayan Jacek and Claudia Gadella fight at the tough finale um, the, uh, the the day before um, UFC 200 right so I don't know if these guys would would, would fight on on <laughs> on uh, on free TV uh, I, I'd like to think that they'd be building that to be a, a co-main event um, for a big July 4th weekend pay-per-view, especially with Cody Garbrandt now. Um, you know, all the kind of reports coming out that WME, IMG have kind of tested as Q rating, uh, and that appears to be very, very high. Now, aside from that, what they've done is they've gone back to their highest rated ever season of the Ultimate Fighter, which was the comeback season. That's the season that really peaked the highest and was able to maintain uh, the most average viewership throughout the course of the season. Season 10 had its biggest peak because it had, ramp- uh, it had um, uh, Kimbo Slice on it. So that, that's a little bit different. But um, season 4 was widely re- regarded as their most successful um, ever season of The Ultimate Fighter. And they've kind of gone back to the concept of getting some of the old guys back. And it's interesting to have one current UFC welterweight in amongst the mix as well. But the question remains, is that enough to make you want to watch it? For me, I don't think it is, Simon. I think I'd be more than happy, uh, by the time you come to June, July, I'd be happy to see um, uh, a video package building up the highlights of the trash talk between TJ Dillashaw 
and Cody Garbrandt, and I'll be happy with that. I don't need to spend 12 weeks or however many weeks the show runs for to get 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there. Um, so I think it's also maybe perhaps a, a, a final, maybe not a final, but definitely one of the last rolls of the dice um, by the promotion. Um, I think they're going to need to start looking at um, some new programming to fit this kind of schedule and slot for Fox. But also don't forget, you know, the current deal is about to expire. So maybe it's not too necessary to to find a new show just right now. They can maybe see out this contract. They can, I'm sure, come up with another a fall season of The Ultimate Fire uh, with, a, with a few other guys or gals. Just, just fill that, plug that hole for the time being until you need to figure out what the new decade-long or however many long years uh, the new TV deal uh, runs for and then figure out what kind of programming is going to be part of that particular deal whether it's with one broadcaster or multiple broadcasters um it's definitely got the most uh piqued my interest the most just from the the concept of the show it'll be interesting to see who does actually come back and i think that'll be that'll be um uh, the deciding factor well let's, let's just wait and see who is actually going to be on the show if it's got some big personalities um if it's maybe some guys that were winners of the Ultimate Fire, had a run through the UFC, and and are now out of the UFC. You know, how, how old are they? What stage of the careers are they at? What have they been up to? Where are they now? Um, and so, um, so it'll be interesting on from that point of view. Um, so I think the jury remains. Um, but for me, I'm still I haven't watched the show in years, so I, I'm not I'm not one to tell you uh, or anyone whether they should or shouldn't watch it. Um, but it's just it's a it's a lot of that the sport already chews up a lot of hours for and the product, sorry, uh, as well. The UFC product itself just just chew up a lot of hours uh, for your everyday Joe um, fan. Um, so if they want to kind of throw in another a week, in an hour of uh, of weekly Ultimate Fire, that's totally down to them. But the viewing figures have have shown that stateside at least um, it seems to be dwindling. So there you go. Yeah, I think from my point of view, I, I'm. I'm actually quite excited about this season. I've got okay. to be honest, and and the reason, the reasons are, sort of, sort of well, there's there's kind of layers to this. First off, this isn't just Cody Garbrandt versus TJ Dillashaw. This is Team Alpha Male versus Dwayne Bang Ludwig and 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 his team. So, I think the the level of interaction isn't going to be limited to just the two fighters. You've got You've got the coaches behind them uh, who are going to be chipping at each other, I think, during the season. So I think that just ramps up the tension a little bit more. You've got that team versus team backstory going on there. I think that's really interesting. The other benefit to this season is we aren't going to be introduced to a load of people we don't know or a load of people that we don't know whether they're capable enough. We're going to meet people who they've all been on our screens before. They've all competed in the show before. Um, and fingers crossed, it should make for a more interesting season because all of those fighters immediately have a backstory that the UFC can tell leading into these fights. They can call on archive footage. They could pull in someone from season eight. They can pull in someone from season 12 or, you know, whatever it may be. And they've got the footage of those guys. And you mentioned, you said the whole, where are they now? That's kind of how they, how, how, how they're going to do it, I guess. They're going to bring all these people back to the mothership once more and say, let's do it all again. We're getting the band back together. Let's do it all again. And I think that's going to be really interesting. So I, I find it a much more compelling reason to watch because everyone loves a good comeback story. 
everyone loves uh, a bit of name recognition and hopefully some of these fighters are people that people will remember from seasons past and I just think it gives the season a little bit more clout and I love tournaments whether it's you know the FIFA World Cup the European Championships the FA Cup anything that involves brackets and a tournament you know the NFL Whatever it is, when you can see a clear path to to the winner, there's no politics, there's no messing around. I'm all for that, and I love that, and I would love to see more tournament-based stuff in MMA. Obviously, the nature of the sport makes it very difficult, injuries and all the rest of it. But uh, the nearest thing we get to a tournament format is what we get in tough. And uh, I'd love to see an, an addition with tough with the, with the very, very, very best guys in the world in it. That, for me, would be the ultimate. But that kind of then detracts from your world title picture and, you know, the rankings, which are crap anyway. But, we'll, you know, <laughs> but it, 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 for me, I love a good tournament. I think this gives us more reason to watch. And uh, with the team versus team thing, with the fact that there's a world championship, hopefully going to be on the line at the end of it. And TJ Dillisher, of course, is, is one of only a handful of people who have actually gone through tough and become a world champion. Uh, they've listed them here. Forrest Griffin, Rashad Evans, Michael Bisbing, Matt Serra, and Carla Esparza. Now, I might be wrong, but I think all of those people won the season. So, Dillashaw, who was beaten by John Dodson, if I remember rightly, um, Dillashaw might be the only guy to have not won tough, but been in tough, not won, and then gone on to win a world championship. So, so that's an interesting one as well. But... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm more invested in this than I was for the last season, which I'll admit I didn't really spend much time watching. I think I'll sit down and watch this one, uh, but I don't know how many more of these we can we can re- realistically churn out. It's um, you know looking for a fight. Dana White is a great Netflix style show. I think that works really well as a talent finding as a talent finding exercise. I don't know how much value it's got. It's just good fun content to watch. Um, but the ultimate fighter, I don't know. I don't know how much more of this we've got left. Do you reckon this might be the last one? It, it might be, but I just had a thought. What we could do, Sai, is uh, depending on how um, the, the first episode goes, if it piques our interest, maybe we could just throw in a review on the on the podcast on a weekly basis and just actually, um, you know, follow the follow the season uh, from you know and give everyone a, a british review on a week by week pay, uh, week by week uh, basis that was something we could do that sounds good it gives us a reason to watch if nothing else it means that we will watch it and yeah. uh, and talk talk through it i think i think that could be interesting and uh you know we can give our give our predictions when we know who's being matched up and prove prove ourselves to be totally useless when it comes to fight picks but yeah <laughs> no let, let's let's take a look at that and we'll see if we can build in some tough talk uh, as part of future episodes of the Brit Pack. Speaking of which, that pretty much takes us to the end of this week's show. But of course, we've got the uh, the one the one part of the show that we all look forward to doing the most, which is answering your questions. Uh, we've had your questions again this week. Uh, Sandu has uh, very uh, studiously collated all of them, and uh, mm-hmm. he's going to chuck the best ones into the mix right now. So. Let's uh, let's get some Q and A done, and uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll stick a bow on this and uh, head off into the sunset. Yeah, well, thanks again for everyone uh, for tweeting away. Um, it's the Brit Pack MMA. That's the Twitter handle. 
Uh, and uh, like we mentioned in, in previous episodes, uh, feel free to just throw us a question throughout the week. It could be a, a Thursday, Friday or a Saturday. Um, you could be out and about or commuting on your way to to work and uh, you might have a burning question you want to ask us. So uh, don't be shy. Send it to us and we'll make sure uh, to give it a like so you know we're going to ask uh, the question on the following week's show. So we're going to start off this week by uh, a question from Eddie G. And he says, who's next for Yair Rodriguez? I would like to see him against Duho Choi or Jeremy Stevens. We discussed this a little bit briefly earlier on, uh, but what, what about Duho Choi or Jeremy Stevens? If you had to pick one or the other side, which one would you go for right now? Well, if I was in Yair Rodriguez's team, I'd want Jeremy Stevens. He's obviously the higher-ranked guy. Um, he's available. I think Duho Choi is probably going to be on a lengthy medical suspension after mm. that absolute slobber knocker with with Cub Swanson. But uh, stylistically, I'd love to see the Duho Choi fight. I think just purely as 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 a as a spectacle, Duho Choi against Yair Rodriguez would be outstanding. You could even headline a Fox Sports or Fox card with that. Two of the two of the most spectacular, exciting fighters in the game going head to head. You could take that fight across to Europe if you wanted to. People would lap that up. And of course, you could take him down to Mexico. Take him down to Mexico and, 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 and give him give him a, re- a really big stage. You could even do that as like a number three fight on a pay-per-view. Uh, or maybe a number two fight if you haven't got two world title fights on the, on the card. But um, I think stylistically that would be the fight. But if you're, if you're Yaya Rodriguez's team, you don't want to be fighting someone ranked below you, as, as Duho Choi is. So if you're, if you're team Rodriguez, you're, you're gunning for Jeremy Stevens if you're given a choice of those two. But for me, I want to see the Duho Choi fight. Yeah, likewise. In a perfect world, I'd love to see the Duho Choi fight as well. Um, but, but I think if Jeremy Stevens was presented with this fight, I think he'd take it. He's obviously coming off that loss to Frankie Edgar um, at UFC 205. Uh, and, and I think what Yair Rodriguez presents to a lot of uh, the upper echelon of that weight class is someone who's still relatively young. He, he still can be quite wild. Uh, with his offense, which could leave him open um, uh, to to some counter strikes if done correctly, and um, and I think the fact that he's you know only eleven or twelve fights into his pro career, if you are going to fight him, now might be the best time to fight him because he's got a few back to back main event victories under his belt. Um, he's starting to become a high profile fighter in that particular weight class. So so yeah, I'd I'd, I'd love to see um, either or. Uh, but given the current availability, I think Stephen would make sense as well. Um, Graham Hughes uh, tweets in and he says, on a domestic level, Pimblet versus Stapleton has to be a shoe in now for the April uh, Cage Warriors show now that Cage Warriors has signed Stapes. So Martin Staple- Stapleton been signed by the Cage Warriors. Now, if I'm Cage Warriors, I'm not putting them together just yet. Um, Pimblet just recently signed a brand new deal with Cage Warriors. So now, if things go according to plan, I think maybe perhaps Pimblet does one more year with the promotion, and then perhaps if, if he keeps racking up those victories, maybe at the back end of the year is when you you know feed him over to the UFC. And Cage Warriors now is literally a, a great promotion here in the UK and Ireland and Europe to cultivate talent, uh, you know, the UFC's tomorrow stars are pretty much coming from Cage Warriors, especially from um, the European contingent. Um, and but if you are going to get Stapleton and Pimblet together, eventually at some point, you know, down the road, 
I, I think you build it up. I think you do some really clever and, and careful matchmaking with both of them. Um, uh, they've obviously got a bit of uh, heat and rivalry going on between them. Uh, there's been a bit of back and forth and trash talk between them on social media and whatnot. Um, so I say, I say you build it. If you're, if you're going to do it, you build it slowly. Um, and, and, you know, it says this will be Stapleton's um, debut for the promotion. And you can't put him straight into a main event uh, against their world champion. It doesn't make sense. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's my take on things. What's your, what's your take on things there, Sai? There's two schools of thought here. One is the, the, uh, the school of thought that you've just offered, that you build it gradually, the whole sort of softly, softly approach. Let the, stories, let the story build. Build them up and then have them meet. Stapleton is is a is a champion from Bama, so he comes in as a as a legitimate, credible challenger to uh, to Paddy Pimblett. Um, the the other argument is you just make the fight. You make the fight because he's he's the best available option. You make the fight because you know you can always do a rematch. You can always have them fight again. That's the thing. That's the great thing about this sport. If the fight happens once and it was a great fight. You can go again if the champion loses his belt and he looks decent enough in the fight. He can get another go at it because he was still the champion beforehand. So it really does depend on how they want to do it because sometimes when you try and build things, things just don't happen. Um, MMA is a notoriously unpredictable sport at times. Injuries can get in the way. Shock results can get in the way. Um, A UFC call-up could get in the way. So... There's lots of different moving parts that you always have to consider as a promoter. Um, even the guys who are promoting at the very, very, very top of the sport in the UFC. You can't... See, because when Mirko Krokop joined the UFC, the plan was, I'm pretty sure, that he would fight Randy Couture for the World Heavyweight Championship. All he had to do was beat Gabriel Gonzaga in Newcastle. And we all know how that turned out. And Krokop never got near, t- near the UFC title after that. But you can bet that that would have been the uh, the idea. Give him one fight against a credible guy to build him. You've had he fought um, oh Sanchez, Eddie Sanchez, beat him, then give him Gonzaga, then give him the title fight. Unfortunately, it didn't work out very well. And Crocop, you know, we never did get that Pride versus UFC super fight that that, that we could have had if they'd have just slung him straight in. Um, so it's always it's always difficult to try and second guess how things will happen. There's always the ideal world scenario, but real life can kick you in the nuts and end up sending you off in a completely different direction. Conor McGregor was going to beat Rafael dos Anjos and then head off into the distance doing that. That didn't happen. He lost to Nate Diaz and he had to go for a loop. Um, that actually worked out to his benefit in the end. But at the time... That completely threw all, all of the plans into disarray. And they had to call an audible on it and make a few changes here and there organisationally. I'm sure they were looking at McGregor um, looking looking to fight at UFC 200. That went by the wayside. So there's so many different things that could go wrong. So it's a tough one. If it were me, I think I'd put him straight in. I'd put him straight in, have that fight, make as much noise about that fight as possible. And if it goes down as well as a fight like that really should, do it again. There's no reason why you can't do it again. If the fight was great first time round, do the rematch. But don't. It's always tricky when you run the risk of not doing the first fight in the first place. I'd put them straight in there. 
Speaking of uh, guys on the local scene here in Europe, uh, just prior to us uh, hitting the record button uh, today, Simon, we um, there was an announcement via his official Facebook page that Tom Firekid Dukenwa has uh, now signed with the UFC. Uh, it's been a long time coming, multiple weight champion uh, for, for Bama, uh, really been um, the, the upper tier of prospects to come out of Europe. I personally always like to tread cases like this with a little bit of caution only because when you enter the UFC it's a different beast altogether um, there's much bigger expectations there's a much bigger spotlight and you quietly hope that the talent you see on some of the regional promotions around the world that these fighters can translate that uh, and kick off from there and become even bigger bigger names bigger fighters the case in point um, is, is Conor McGregor um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I think we can quietly hope that the UFC might stick him on the London card, um, but perhaps they'll sit on that and maybe put him on a different card altogether uh, in Europe later on this year. Um, but that'd be great if, to have him on the London card. And, and I'm sure, I just wanted to mention that now, because uh, I'm sure by the time we um, uh, start recording next week's episode, there might be a few questions about him uh, from people that want to know a bit more about him, our take on him. Uh, his potential, what he's capable of. So just wanted to give a quick um, shout to Tom Dukunwa uh, and for our listeners um, that perhaps um, aren't aware he has, according to his Facebook page anyway, uh, signed a contract with the UFC. So now, with that being said, our next question is, uh, is a bit of a meaty one, Simon, so I'm going to let you kick off on this one. Um, Amir tweets in and says, thoughts on Mark Hunt's case versus the UFC. So for anyone um, that's been living under a rock, um, Mark Hunt signed his bout agreement with Alistair Overeem for UFC uh, 209, and then subsequently, just a few days later, um, sues the UFC. Um, it's not just uh, Dana White, president, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's um, the, the owners, WMEIMG, um, President Dana White, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be completely wrong here, it might even be the Fatita brothers. I'm not 100% sure about that. But in any case, uh, he is suing the UFC. Uh, uh, from from his po- point of view, there was lots of, I suppose, negligence um, and favoritism uh, put in favor for Brock Lesnar. He was given um, a USADA exemption from the, the, the mandatory four-month um, testing that is required for any athlete, doesn't matter if you're retired, uh, new to the company, etc., etc., um, uh, so that you're, you know, you've been tested randomly uh, and out of competition for for four months before you step into the octagon. And obviously, we know what happened. Now we've talked about it to death over the over the course of the last couple of months in regards to UFC 200 and the aftermath of that one. Um, but your your overall kind of broad strokes thoughts, Simon, um, on Mark Hunt going ahead. Suing the big dog, suing the UFC. What did you make of it? I think it's it's a it's a it's a very tricky spot. It's a very tricky spot because in order to win, and I'm not sure he thinks he's going to win, but I think the best he can get out of it is a settlement. I really do. I don't, I can't see him winning because to win, he's basically got to prove that the UFC were effectively in cahoots with Brock Lesnar. And that they knew that they were going to put Brock Lesnar on UFC 200 long before they announced it. 
And the reason that they didn't give him the four, uh, uh, the reason that they gave him the exemption from the four months was because it was such a last-minute thing. Now, if they'd have been, if they've been planning this for for weeks or months in in advance, and they gave him the exemption, and then he he pees hot like he does, then there's 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 questions to be answered there. The thing is, how 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 are they going to even prove this? You know, at, at this point, Hunt's basically taking a flyer because he, I'm pretty sure he won't have any documentary proof of it. So the situation at this point is uh, he has to prove he has to prove that this has happened. He has to. It's, it's not necessarily on the UFC to prove that it hasn't. He has to prove that it has. So that being the case, he's got an uphill task. So the other thing which makes it tricky is that from the minute the the, uh, the fight was signed, in fact, even maybe before it was officially announced, there was rumblings about it potentially. Um, Hunt, from minute one, pretty much was saying that Lesnar's juiced and all the rest of it, and he doesn't care, blah, 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 blah. That, that makes your arguing position a little bit tricky. If you're saying, oh, yeah, he's juiced, but I'm going to take the fight anyway, that almost... Mm-hmm. Did, that, and, and, and he's on record as saying that somewhere then that almost says that he's not not necessarily in agreement with it, but he's in acceptance of it. So that it then makes it harder to come back as well. Now, also, when you sign a contract to fight, you sign based on the conditions of your contract, the conditions that about agreement. The USADA situation and everything. He knew that Brock was getting the exemption when he signed the bout agreement. So if you if you sign the bout agreement, knowing the conditions under which you're going to operate, then it makes it very difficult to then go back on unless you can prove something underhand or outside of those conditions of the contract has happened. So he's got an uphill battle. I think the best he can hope for is that the UFC don't want this to drag on and that they just look to settle and settle quickly and just just put a lid on it. The other issue, of course, is Mark Hunt is is an ageing, high-earning fighter. Mm-hmm. Um he can leave if, if if he's released, but he would leave and go straight to Bellator or straight to... Well, if he goes to Rising, then that would be pretty hypocritical because Rising, I'm not sure, has that much in the way of drug testing at all. So if you're going to worry about fighting juiced opponents, you don't go and fight at Rising. But fighting in Bellator would be, would be an obvious thing for him. That would involve Mark Hunt going and joining the UFC's number one competitors. They might not be so keen on that either. So... There's lots of different layers to this, but I think the long and short of it is, from my understanding, and my understanding of the US legal system is thin, to say the least. Yeah. But I would assume on this, the onus is on Mark Hunt to prove that something has gone on here. And he's just, at this point, they, they just seem to be allegations and suggestions. So if you're bringing a lawsuit, then you'd like to think that if you're, if you're throwing your money at a legal team and you're going up against a legal team that's funded by one of the biggest media organizations on the planet, you you know, you'd like to think you'd have a case. Otherwise mm-hmm. what you're doing, you're just peeing your money away. So, um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't see this as being a case that Mark Hunt is going to win. I admire the stance he's taking. I think the basis of what he's saying in terms of his attitude towards performance enhancing drugs, drugs, cheats, and the fact that, he hasn't received any compensation for what happened. I, I do. I do think that's wrong. 
But that's part of the contract that he signed. He knew the conditions when he signed it. Now, in an ideal world, you'd have a situation whereby fighters get a similar sort of uh, treatment to what happens when their opponent misses weight. If your opponent misses weight, you get 20% or 30% of the purse, depending on how much you miss weight by. If you, but if you if you fail a performance, if if you fail a, a drug test, even if it's after the fight, your opponent gets nothing. Mm-hmm. So so that that's a bit of a weird a weird situation. I think in an ideal world, if you've gone in there, you fought against a guy who subsequently tests positive. I think you're realistically due some sort of compensation, whether it's part of the purse or or or, or, or what. I don't know, but. That that would make sense to me, but that would require a change in the way the contracts are drawn up by by the UFC, or or by the uh, or by the uh, sanctioning body, who would control the uh, the purses and things like that. So, to me, I think that's that's one issue. The issue of the UFC being in cahoots with Brock Lesnar over this and knowing they were going to bring him in uh, early enough to have allowed him to go through the testing procedure. That's a tricky thing to prove. If they can prove that, then maybe they've got a case. But it's it's going to be it's it's a big old can of worms. Um, and I just hope that whatever happens with it, we end up in a position where Mark Hunt is allowed to carry on his career and continue fighting, whether that be in the UFC or somewhere else. And it, ideally, further down the line, there's a situation where people who do end up uh, fighting people who are subsequently on performance performance enhancers are compensated for it because I think that is a reasonable thing to expect if you're a particularly in combat sports where where you know you're putting your health on the line um but as I say the one fly in the ointment for Mark Hunt may be that he openly spoke about Brock Lesnar and his thoughts that he may well be on the juice prior to the fight which suggests that I'm taking the fight anyway I don't care well you can't then turn around after and say well actually I do care it's kind of a it's kind of a tricky spot for him, and as I say, I can't see him, I can't see him getting anything, other than a other than a, a settlement at best. Well, it's certainly something that we're going to be following very very closely. It's already turning into one of the biggest stories of 2017, um, and I'm sure with most uh, lawsuits, this could be something that kind of drags on uh, for many many months, well after his bout or with Alistair Overeem as well. Um, now, we've got UFC Fight Night London creeping up around the corner in March, and I've got a feeling we're going to start to get a lot more questions with regards to that London card. Um, this question comes in from Bailey, who says, who do you see headlining UFC London in March? And we spoke about this a little bit last week, Simon. Um, my kind of um, mystic Matt Crystal Ball prediction um, is still pretty much the same. I think you get somebody like a Chris Weidman or a Luke Rockhold over from the States, and you match him up with um, the second-best European middleweight outside of Michael Bisping. That's Gegard Mousasi, who's been on a hot streak. And I think that would make for an adequate, sellable, and justifiable uh, main event for London, which I think it's not just because we live and work in London. I think when you look at the European market and the, and the, and the series of fight nights in Europe, London's always uh, the, the big staple that's the one that tends to get the most media involved. Um, it's certainly, I believe, uh, one of the biggest arenas and the one that they get the most gate um, revenue from as well. 
And I think it's the one that um, our stateside friends always look forward to as well, uh, the London card. So so my opinion on what I think might happen hasn't changed. Has your uh, opinion changed on who you'd like to, who you think they'd put in that main event? Yeah, I've, I've, as soon as you mentioned this last week, I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we need. And uh, short of having a world title fight, then I think I think having Musasi versus Rockhold, or Mas- any combination actually of Musasi, Weidman, and Rockhold, any two of those, even if Musasi's not in the mix and it's Rockhold, Rockhold, Weidman, um, it'd be Rockhold, Weidman too, won't it? So um, if that's the main event, I think people will be overjoyed with that. I think Musasi deserves his shot. So I, you know, having Gegard in there against one of those two makes a lot of sense. If you're Gegard. I think the I think the uh, the more sensible fight would probably be the Rockhold fight, um, but bringing Chris Weidman over would be would be no problem. The reason why I don't think they'll bring Chris Weidman over is that the UFC are hosting a lot of East Coast events in 2017. You know now they've got the uh, they've sort of kicked the doors in in New York and they can now hold events over there and they've promised to host a multitude of shows over the coming months and years on the East Coast, then you would think someone like Weidman, you'd want to reserve him for some of those shows over there. So I think it would make more sense for them to do Rockhold over here than to do Weidman. But uh, yeah, I like I like any combination of those three. But Rockhold versus Musasi would make the most sense to me. That would be my pick right now. I started the show by talking about uh, how I was watching the WWE UK Championship this, last, uh, this past weekend. And the final question is a WWE-related question. Uh, the People's Hero tweets in and says, if you were the WWE, would you ever consider signing Ronda Rousey now, even if it's a one-off? This is a tricky one because I, I, I am of the opinion that if I'm the WWE and it's we're coming up to WrestleMania now, we're on the road to WrestleMania, Royal Rumble's around the corner. Traditionally, they tend to get combat sports athletes that are red hot at that moment. So if you look at Muhammad Ali, he he helped kick start um, and get the, the the main publicity behind the very first WrestleMania, and then throughout the years, you had the likes of uh, Mike Tyson uh, get involved. You had the likes of even uh, Ronda Rousey made an appearance a few years ago. You had Floyd Mayweather uh, have a match with the Big Show, uh, pretty much at the height of his stardom. If I'm a WWE, I'm and I'm looking at perhaps um, somebody from the MMA world. I don't think I'm looking at Ronda Rousey right now. I think I'm looking at Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor isn't going to fight for a while. Um, his missus is going to be giving birth around, I think, May. Um, so I think the earliest we'll probably see him might be in the summer. This is a great opportunity for him if they can strike a deal um, to actually get some work in, get a payday, and I'm sure it'll be a, a, a nice payday at that, and also get involved with yet another pay-per-view offering for the North American um, audience in a similar demographic that watches MMA and boxing and combat sports with that WWE uh, fan base. Um, and and I, and I think it will just make a lot of sense, you know. It, it'll be something that his missus will be comfortable with. I mean, the whole thing he was talking about um, in the New York press conference at 205 was, you know, he didn't want anything to go wrong um, with the birth and now with his with his missus worrying about him being in a fight camp or a fight coming around because it, it gets her quite emotional, understandably so. If you've got loved ones and you're in the fight business, um, so this would be a great way for her to have peace of mind, for him to have a bit of fun, 
earn a big uh, you know payday, I'm sure. Um, and I'm sure the WWE would, would want that too, because I think they want to associate themselves with number one. They consider themselves number one. And right now in MMA, Conor McGregor is number one. Ronda Rousey, unfortunately, she's in, in a really, really uh, odd spot. She's not really talking to the media that much anyway. She's coming off back-to-back losses. Um, she's pretty much as rock bottom as you can get within our sport. Um, so, so that's my take on it. But yeah, if you're the UFC Simon, are you attempting to even uh, communicate or sign sign Ronda Rousey right now? Even though they've got the history with her doing a little bit of uh, work with The Rock, Stephanie McMahon, and Triple H. Yes, the simple answer is yes. I know, I know Ronda Rousey in MMA terms is damaged goods, badly damaged goods at this point. She's had two absolutely crushing knockout losses. She's still an elite athlete. I think she would still beat most of the women in that UFC 135-pound division. She just happens to have lost two fights in devastating fashion. It's mixed martial arts. It happens. Does this mean that she's finished? No. Not at all. If she decides to come back, changes her training camp, and and rebuilds from the ground up, there I see no reason why she can't become a legitimate world championship contender in 12 to 18 months' time. Given given a change in training camp and a change of a change of emphasis. Now, in terms of the WWE, what we need to bear in mind here, yeah, completely agree with you about aligning themselves with the number one, with the biggest star. They might not be able to afford Conor McGregor. Is 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 the long and short of it. They might not be able to afford Conor McGregor. If they can get Conor McGregor, that would be just ridiculous, um, and would be, I think that would be the dream move for for everybody concerned. I think it would work great for McGregor. I think it would work great for the UFC. So sorry, yeah, it would great for the UFC. Good publicity for them, but also it would work great for the WWE. Now Ronda Rousey, besides the fact that she's lost her two her last two fights, she her her pulling power is is immense, um, and and for the for 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 the WWE, I think they can still leverage that. I think they can still leverage that because if you look at the situation with the WWE. They've got their Divas division, and that's growing and doing very well at the moment. But to bring in someone like Rousey, they can they can bring in one of you know one of their one of their heel characters, and really, st- if Rousey is is prepared to go down this route, I'm not sure she would be. But have someone start chipping away at the fact, yeah, you're a busted flush, you've lost your last two, not as good as you thought you are, blah blah blah. That becomes an angle, and if Rousey can can separate herself from the reality of the situation and go into sort of character mode that could become a really compelling angle that you could build going into wrestlemania and the fact is she draws she draws more than pretty much any female athlete on the planet now yeah she lost she lost terribly to holly holm but she drew 1.1 million on a friday after christmas uh for 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 a ufc pay-per-view event when the vast majority of people who are involved in the sport thought that she was going to get beat. So despite that, despite the fact that her aura of invincibility had already been smashed a year before, she still drew 1 million buyers. And if you put her on a WWE show, there's no reason to, to think that she couldn't have a similar sort of galvanizing effect on pay-per-view buyers. You know, particularly if it's done not as a surprise but you actually trail it and you lead it in. So I think if it's done the right way and the WWE creative 
team would have to have a heavy hand in this and Ronda would have to buy in completely. But if they tell the story the right way, I think Ronda Rousey at WrestleMania could still be an absolutely huge thing for them. Whether she'd do it full-time afterwards, I don't know. I guess it depends on how successful it is and how how coachable the uh, the talent the talent uh, management people at the WWE think think that she is and how well she can work with the other talent on the roster but as a as a as a personality I don't see why not if you can WWE can sell anything if they tell the story right um and everyone loves a comeback story so why not why not Connor's the A ticket right he's he he's the He's the golden ticket, but if they can't get Connor, then I'd definitely be going after Ronda for WWE. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean the other thing that makes me think about Connor um, is the fact that you know, you know, even though he's out of the UFC game just for the minute, while his missus is pregnant, he's keeping himself active. He's got this. I don't know if it's going to be a movie or if it's a web series movie. He's got this. I don't even know what it's called. It's this jockey series um, thing that he's been plugging on his social media. So he's got that going on. Um, and he's got evening an, an experience evening with, so he's partnered up with his company, and he's got uh, coming up at, uh, towards the back end of January, um, uh, an evening with Conor McGregor in Manchester, uh, which actually they've, they've even been able to nab uh, Ariel Hawani to come and come down and and host that sit down Q and A for a captive audience for about an hour, and and you know they've sold tickets for it, um, and I'm. I'm, I'll be surprised if it's not already sold out at this stage, just given how how popular and famous he is right now in our little world. Um, but they're also going to do an eye pay per view, you know, uh, for I think it's three quid. So everybody around the world will be able to just buy it on pay per view and, and and stream it for three quid. So I'm sure he's he's you know still thinking about the business side of things and seeing how he can kind of get his feet wet here and there and, and figure out how he can you know make sure he's still earning as much as possible given his, you know, star power and how famous he is, even though he's not, you know, particularly um, going to be that active for the UFC for quite a bit of time. Um, but it's always interesting. It's always fascinating to see uh, out the MMA world, the WWE world kind of collide and clash here and there. And it seems to have happened a lot more um, than it used to over the course of the last three or four years with Ronda Rousey and CM Punk and Conor McGregor and Brock Lesnar and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's always uh, interesting when that kind of stuff happens. But uh, but yeah, that is that is me done, and that is uh, the Q and A segment wrapped up for another week, Simon. Brilliant episode number twenty three, done and dusted. Uh, thank you as always for uh, for listening, for downloading, subscribing. If you don't subscribe yet, then why not make this week the week that you make the big decision? You can get us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Acast. You can find all the information you need to know about the show including all of our past episodes at our website thebritpackmma.com all the details on how to subscribe are on there as well you can follow us on twitter i'm at simon head sandu is at sandu mma and the show's handle is at the Britpack mma we've got a gap week next week no fights with the ufc next week but things are gradually beginning to warm up as we head towards the end of January and into February. Business is going to pick up. The UFC are going to start putting more shows on. We've got some big domestic shows coming down the pipe as well. We've got a lot to talk about on the Brit Pack in the weeks and months to come. So please do subscribe. Join us on any of those platforms. We're also on YouTube as well. So please do check us out on there. 
and uh, we will speak to you in a week's time. Thanks for listening.